0: Viking Village, The Story of Formby, written by Edith Kelly, on behalf of the Formby Society, in 1973. Viking Village, Chapter 5, the 19th century. The tithe map of 1845. The payment of a tithe, or tenth part of all the produce of the land, is a very old form of taxation, known in Babylon and China, Greece and Rome, and among the Arabs and the Jews in early times. In England, from the 8th century onwards, tithes became a legal tax payable for the support of the church, charged on cattle, horses and sheep, grain, hay, wood, poultry and eggs, and the produce of fisheries and mills. In the middle of the 19th century, this cumbersome system of payment in kind was commuted to payment in cash. The Tithe Commutation Act was passed between the years 1836 and 1860, and average prices for goods were agreed on each year. In some cases, as in Formby, a rate per head of cattle being pastured was arranged. In lieu of the tithe of milk and calves, for one cow and calf, one and a half pence. For four cows and calf, one shilling. For five cows and calf, one shilling. For six cows and calf, four shillings. For eight cows and calf, six shillings. For ten cows and calf, eight shillings. And so on in the same progressive series for any greater number. For the tithe of colts, fourpence for each cold, for the tithe of honey and wax, fourpence for each swarm of bees, and in lieu of the tithe of poultry, a halfpenny from each homestead. A map was drawn up for the lords of the manor to enable them to settle the difficult question of how much tithe each man must pay. It names and numbers the fields and shows how they were divided amongst the inhabitants, The map is explained by a schedule which names each occupier of land and shows very clearly that the medieval system of land use was still in force. The inhabitants held scattered strips of land in different parts of the manor, some meadowland, some pasture and some arable. And although there had been already an attempt at consolidating the strips into larger units by purchase and exchange, the system still held good to a large extent. For example, the entry for Thomas Howard, church warden, is as follows. Strip number 341, House and Garden, Arable. 342, Weaving Shop and Garden, Arable. 343, Yort, Arable and Meadow. 730, Gorsage, Meadow. 733, Gorsage Meadow 1471 Twiggy Hay Pasture. This entry tells us that Thomas Howard was a weaver but that he also farmed his strips, some at the back of his own house, i.e. a yacht, some in the field called Gorsage or Gorse Hedge and some in the pasture field called Twiggy Hay, a meadow. Ellen Howard, who is next on the list, and presumably Thomas's wife, also had land, possibly handed down from her father. 1677 Lower Wham, Meadow. 1742 Higher Wham, Arable. 1743 Higher Wham, Pasture. A comparison of these entries in the schedule, with the numbers on the map, show that Thomas Howard's Weaving Shop and Garden were in Kenyon's Lane, with some land nearby, but most of his meadowland was in a field further north, and his pasture land still further to the north of the village. Ellen's strips were on land near to Formby Hall, called the whams, or home fields. A study of the field names is interesting, if somewhat baffling. There are many with the name of Hook, situated in the bends or hooks of the Eastern and Southern boundaries of the manor. There is Sadden Hook, Old Long Long Hook, Little Hook and North Hook and Stingman's Hook or Steeman's Hook. Other field names tell their own tale. So here are a few of them. Rabbit Pasture, Poverty Field near Freshfield Station. Clay Newfield, Clay Holes Acre, Matthew's Field, Billy's Acre, Jemmy's Car, Schoolfield near Formby Hall, Fingerpost Hay, Kissing Butt, Long Butts, Short Butts, Spinner's Croft, Mill Yacht, Flax Field, Clover Field, Wheat Field, Potato Croft, Carrot Hay, Bean Yacht, Pea Field, Vineyard Incredibly, Field Facing Cunning Johns and One Field named by an exasperated owner, Bloody Long Field. The schedule also names the lanes and roads and some of the houses then standing. Watchyard Lane and Deansgate Lane, here Gate Lane, separate words have already been referred to. Paradise Lane is Primrose and Paradise Lane. Fisherman's Lane, King's Nooks Lane and Kirk Lake Lane are named Freshfield Road uh, are named. Freshfield Road is Fouracre Lane. The others mentioned still survive in the same form in which they are given. Other interesting items are Sadler's Shop, William Harrison. Beer gardens, Thomas Eccles. School, Dovecote and Nursery, Mary Formby. Tithe Barn and Yard, Richard Tyra. Three Tons House in Three Tons Lane. Drawwells, and Dow in Draw Wells. A certain John Cooper has managed, by exchange or purchase, to have his strips all together instead of in separate lots. He obviously has a tidy mind, for he names them sixth field, fifth field, fourth field, down to first field. And next are his house, house, orchard and garden. Very economical of time and energy. The schedule also tells us that the land of the manor amounts to 3,500 acres, which are cultivated and used as follows. 2,400 acres as arable land, 200 acres as meadow or pasture land, 870 acres as sand hills or rabbit warrens, 30 acres as sites of houses and gardens. The commuted payments of tithe on the produce of this land were to commence in 1850 and were allotted one to the Vicar of Walton on the Hill, five pounds, two to the rectors of Walton on the hill 242 pounds 17 shillings victoriana an entertainment for the queen's jubilee june the 21st 1887 on tuesday her majesty victoria queen of great britain and ireland and empress of india completed the 50th year of her reign over the united kingdom having succeeded to the throne on June 20th, 1837. During that week, there were Thanksgiving services connected with all the churches in the village. There were also teas for the children and the old folk, a concert at the Jubilee Hall and another at the Victoria Hall in Freshfield. These concerts made use of the same artists and artistes and the programmes resembled each other very closely. Mr. W. Davidson Brown, acted as director, and Mrs. Butcher and Miss Thomas were accompanists. The press reported that the first part of the programme ended with a glee, Victoria, England's Queen, sung by the Formby and Jubilee choirs. Then Mr. Webster Webster rendered Dear England, after which Miss Alice Wood, a little girl of ten, executed a violin solo, the keel row with piano accompaniment. On leaving the platform, Miss Formby presented her with a small bouquet of roses. Mrs Ainsworth showed considerable elocutionary power in reading and was accorded hearty applause. Messrs. Jackson and Brown rendered a duet, Excelsior, and received an encore. Mrs Parslow sang Consider the Lilies, and the Formby choir sang a part song. In the second part, There were more songs rendered which all elicited loud applause. Love's Request, I Would That My Love and The Village Blacksmith were all encored and the proceedings ended with the hearty rendering of the national anthem. Perhaps our present choral society would care to reproduce these items for us at some stage. The Church of Holy Trinity The great increase in the numbers of people coming to live in Formby in the latter part of the last century, made it necessary to provide more accommodation for worshippers in all religions. Many members of the Church of England, living at the southern and western sides of the township, began to meet for services in the Jubilee Hall, now the Guild Hall, and were in the care of the Reverend F. F. Greenstead, M.A. and the Reverend J. Brooke Richardson, M.A., known as J. B. R., who later became the vicar of the new parish. Meanwhile, efforts were being made to provide a church to serve this part of the district. In 1889, the foundation stone was laid and in 1890, the church was opened for worship. In 1892, the consecration ceremony took place and a separate parish was created. At the same time, the building and furnishing of the parish room was undertaken and shortly afterwards, of a day school. These projects were only completed after the expenditure of an enormous amount of effort, time and money. The money for building was obtained from gifts, endowments, fates, fairs, bazaars, concerts and other sources. It is claimed that the first jumble sale ever held in Thornby took place on March 17th, 1891. It was a great success and the profits, nearly £15, were given to help the furnishing fund of the parish room. The church was built in imitation of the early English style of architecture. A reredos designed by Wolfall and Eccles was installed at a later date in memory of those who fell in the war. It depicts the Last Supper and was dedicated by Bishop Shavas. After a further increase in population, The church was enlarged in 1925 and the seating was increased from 240 to 524. The day school was opened in the spring of 1901. A man who gave much of his time and genius to the raising of funds for the church was Mr Percy French. He was the cousin of the vicar and well known as a poet, songwriter, artist and musician. He wrote The Mountains of Mourne Fill the Flutus Ball, and many other well-known songs. He packed the parish room on many occasions and entertained the parishioners in a truly versatile way, sketching, reciting, and singing. He died while on a visit to Formby and is buried in St Luke's churchyard, where his grave has become a place of pilgrimage for his many admirers. The Nonconformists how did nonconformity come to Formby, where the farming population had so long been divided between Church of England and Roman Catholic? Was it introduced by settlers from other towns? Liverpool and Ormskirk had their quota of dissenters, or did some follower of John Wesley turn his attention to this remote village? In whatever way they began, they were at least sufficiently numerous at the beginning of the 19th century to receive the ministrations of itinerant preachers, travelling like John Wesley himself on horseback. In 1801, an independent minister, Mr. Honeywood, was centred at Ormskirk and visited the surrounding villages. A few years later, the Reverend George Greatbatch, a congregational minister from Southport, preached on Sundays, alternating with a Methodist minister. The Methodists were served by the Southport Circuit up to 1868 and they met for worship in various cottages and gardens. In that year, Formby became part of the Waterloo Circuit and this seems to have brought about an increase in activity with young preachers walking out from Waterloo to take services here, often in gardens and in wet weather in the cottage of Mr James, nicknamed Methody Rimmer in Little Alker. Sometimes they met at the new mill in Cable Street and used the mill platform for a pulpit with as many as 200 people gathered round in the open air. At length, Mr. James Parslow came to live in Formby as a regular preacher and local strength was increased. The Methodist chapel was built in 1877 in Elbow Lane and an undenominational mission room was built in Sefton Road in 1890. The congregation of this mission had at one time met in an empty shop in Queens Road, which is now a hairdresser's. After about 15 years, this congregation too joined the Methodist circuit. Some of the founders of this mission were Mr. Wilder, Mr. Carroll, Mr. William Charters and Mr. Langford Jones. The building has now been demolished. A day school was held at Elbow Lane from 1883 but was discontinued when the schoolmistress, Miss Hayes, married. The chapel was enlarged in 1899 and again very recently. The Congregational Church. The Congregational support in Formby also increased gradually during the 19th century. Again, the Reverend William Honeywood is claimed as the evangelist of this group. He was engaged by by the itinerant society to visit the villages and hamlets of Southwest Lancashire. He rode on horseback to his various districts, probably composing his sermons on the way. An extract from the memoirs of Dr. Thomas Raffles, Minister of Great George Street Chapel in Liverpool, describes the conditions under which the itinerant preachers worked. April the 20th, 1817. Dr. Collock of Savannah, USA, preached for me, and I went to Formby and preached to a few plain country people in a temple whose walls were mud, the roof straw, and the floor, the bare earth, the pulpit, the back of a chair, and the seats, an old weaving loom. In the afternoon, we had about 20 people, and in the evening, having brought their neighbours, we had upwards of 40, as many as the room would hold. It seems from this report that there was already support for the Congregationalists in Formby, probably as a result of the Reverend Honeywood's earlier mission. Another later missioner was Mr Robert Abram, whose area of operations was the whole of the Sea Coast districts from North Meals to Litherland. Interest in the mission seems to have waxed and waned according to the zeal and popularity of the missionaries. And the story begins again later in the century with the families of Mr William Parslow and Captain Bully of Formby, who determined to revive the support for the congregational cause. Captain Bully was a retired sea captain, a colorful figure with a long white beard, and like all sea captains, determined to get things moving. With the help of the Southport Church and its minister, the Reverend John Chater, a new congregation was formed on September the 19th, 1881, when a tea party and inaugural meeting set the ship on course again. Services were held at the Grapes Hotel at first, but the people soon obtained their own church and on October the 6th, 1882, the memorial stone was laid at the plot on Church Road where now the third building stands. The first church was a temporary one. The second was a corrugated iron building and the third, the present one, was built in 1938 after the demolition of the second one. The first, temporary church, was used as a hall and Sunday school until 1971 when it was replaced by a new hall. In the same year, 1971, the Congregational and Presbyterian churches joined together to form the United Reformed Church. The Baptists. Little is known of the Baptist congregation, which once existed in Formby, that it did exist is certain, although it probably consisted of a very small group of people. In 1887, They built a small chapel in Piersfield Road and their services were held for six or seven years. After these few years, however, the chapel was converted to a private house and has remained so ever since. A former owner of the house is understood to have found under the floor of the main room evidence of a large baptismal font. podcast is an independent production if you'd like to contact us with your story or you have a story to tell email us at formbypodcast at gmail.com thanks for listening